to our hearts through your word, your holy word. And may it be a blessing to us and may it also serve as a light to our path as we seek to move forward as your people living the life you call us to live. Amen. C.T. Studd was born in 1860 into an uber-rich family in England. Uh, his father had made his fortune from jute plantations in northern India. And the Studds, as a result, owned two stately homes. Uh, family life revolved around hunting, cricket, and racehorses. Uh, C.T. had the best education that money could buy. Uh, he went to Eton College and then on to Trinity College at Cambridge University in 1879. Uh, even though he was a Christian, he would later summarize his Cambridge years as, and I quote, an unhappy backsliding state. Uh, he recounted how, and I quote again, how he hunted the Bible for hidden truths but had no obedience and no sacrifice. Uh, also, he said, instead of going and telling others of the love of Christ, I was selfish and kept the knowledge all to myself. The result was that gradually my love began to grow cold and the love of the world came in. Uh, he excelled in rowing and cricket and became a household name for representing his country in cricket against those beastly Australians. The turning point came when his brother fell dangerously ill and then he began to see life in its true perspective. Uh, he later recounted, and I quote again, as I watched by my brother's bedside, I began to see that the world, what the world was worth. God showed me what's the honor, what the pleasures, what the riches of this world are truly worth. It was at this point that C.T. rededicated his life to the Lord. And the devotion he had formerly given to cricket was now directed to serving the Lord. Uh, he spoke more openly about his faith. And it wasn't long before one of his closest friends came to faith in Christ as a result of C.T.'s witness, as C.T. later recounted. And again, I quote, I have tasted most of the pleasures that this world can give. Uh, I do not suppose there was ever one I had not experienced, but I can tell you that those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of that one soul gave me. And the rest of his story is, as they say, history. Uh, C.T. became one of seven Cambridge graduates who dedicated their lives to serving Christ in mission overseas. Uh, initially, he went to China to work with Hudson Taylor, and later he went on to Africa. The impact of these seven incredibly talented, uh, and most of them from very privileged backgrounds, uh, these seven was not just in their work overseas. Their sacrifice and dedication attracted great public interest in the UK. And prior to their departure, they toured the UK speaking with great power and conviction as to all that the Lord had done for them. As a result, many in the UK came to faith in Christ, and many others themselves went forward in mission. Uh, C.T. would later give his share of his fortune away in the service of the Lord. It's interesting as you reflect on C.T.'s life. Now, over time, 
his life was progressively transformed by the gospel. His perspective changed as his faith grew, and particularly through those events like his brother uh, nearly dying. And he moved, didn't he, from being a half-hearted worldly Christian uh, to being an all-out-for-Christ, deeply committed, joyful Christian. For him, sacrificial service to the Lord was a privilege, and he found deep joy in putting all on the altar, uh, his life and his wealth. Well, back in James chapter 3, we saw two alternative types of wisdom, uh, worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And the question is, which will we choose? On which will our lives be grounded? If you remember, worldly wisdom was uh, self-serving and self-centered, and its root was pride. And yet heavenly wisdom was God-trusting and God-centered, and its root was humility. Uh, C.T. Studd's story is one of growing in heavenly wisdom, uh, changing from worldliness to godliness. And the reality is that all Christians are on a spectrum, uh, worldliness at one end and godliness at the other. And throughout life, as God changes us, we move along that spectrum. The question is this, what does it look like to keep moving in a positive direction along that spectrum, away from worldliness and towards godliness? Now, typical of the whole letter of James, James continues to explore this in a very practical, nitty-gritty, down-to-earth manner. And what we're going to see in this passage today is that there are two warnings and one exhortation. Firstly, beware godless planning because tomorrow is unknown. Secondly, beware luxurious living because judgment is near. Thirdly, embrace patient perseverance because the Lord is coming. So firstly, beware godless planning because tomorrow is unknown. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, uh, it sounds like James has been overhearing, maybe eavesdropping on the conversation of some business people. Uh, whether they're Christians or not, we don't know. Uh, there's nothing unusual in their plans. They're about to go off on a business trip and it's all been arranged. Uh, the departure time is set, uh, today or tomorrow, at uh, the morning flight out of Sydney Airport. At destination, we will go to this city or that. Uh, probably not a Chinese destination at this present time. Length of stay, uh, spend a year there, uh, working for the office there. And the purpose, to carry on business and to make money. Uh, what's wrong with any of that? Uh, is it wrong to make plans? Of course it's not. Is it wrong to make money? Of course it's not. So what is wrong with this? Verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Uh, none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. Uh, we've no idea what is round the corner. Uh, tomorrow we could be made redundant. Uh, we could fall seriously ill. Uh, we may even die. Verse 14 continues. Uh, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life is short. It appears and then disappears. Here one minute and then gone the next. Uh, with the rain recently, we've seen some misty mornings of late, but the mist eventually does pass. And so our lives here 
are here one moment, but then they are gone the next. Even if you make it to old age, life is soon past us. So what should our attitude be in the light of this perspective on time? What is heavenly wisdom? What does it call us to do and how does it call us to live? Verse 15. Instead, uh, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Uh, Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Uh, We don't, but God does. And he knows what day will die. He knows what each day will bring. And he is ultimately in control of that. We know, don't we, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God willing it. We are finite but God is infinite. We are limited, but God is sovereign over all. And so it's wise to live according to heavenly wisdom, to live humbly, to make our plans humbly, to acknowledge that God is in charge and ultimately we are not. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Uh, It's a perspective which very much shapes the Apostle Paul's whole life. Um, There are numerous places in his writings where we see this. Acts 18 verse 21 is one example. He says this when he leaves Ephesus. He says, I will come back if it is the Lord's will. Uh, Paul was very aware that he wasn't in control. Uh, He had hopes. He had dreams. He made plans, but always within the framework of an understanding that God was in control. And he was ultimately submissive to God's will. So you see, all of Paul's plans were made in pencil. They were provisional. They always carried that caveat, if it's God's will. But these people to whom James was writing had a very different attitude. Verse 16. As it is, you boast and you brag, and all such boasting is evil. The problem with the planning in verse 13 is the pride in verse 16. Boasting in their arrogance. What James is taking issue with is a proud attitude which assumes, hey, I'm in charge of my life. I make the plans. I'm going to do this or that when I determine it's my life and I'm in control. Such boasting is evil. It is worldly. It is godless. It leaves God out of the picture and it's out of touch with reality. It's not living according to heavenly wisdom. We, of course, are not in control. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Who knows? We could be dead in the morning. You see, the essence of sin is ultimately to live life as if we're in charge. Uh, it's often very evident in people who are not yet Christians. Uh, I wear the crown. Uh, I will call the shots. But of course, such an attitude doesn't magically disappear when we come to faith in Christ. And that proud attitude can be evidence in our planning. Uh, We've got our life all mapped out. Uh, We'll study this, we'll get that job. We'll live here so long, we'll make that, we'll buy that, we'll retire here. The attitude can still be as Christians. It's my life and I'm in control. Well, James is inviting us to think according to heavenly wisdom, to live in the light of the fact that only God is truly in control, and none of our plans will come to anything unless he permits. 
Of course, God is the eternal rock, and we are but the passing mist. Uh, Does the phrase, if God wills, feature in our planning? Uh, The scenario addressed here in James is our work life, but of course it applies to every area of life, to our academic life, to our church life, to our career, to our family life. None of us are immune to that worldly way of thinking. And if it's something that we find we've fallen into, uh, wisdom, heavenly wisdom, calls us to put it right without delay. Verse 17. Uh, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So, the first warning against worldly wisdom is being godless in our planning because ultimately we don't know what tomorrow holds. The second warning is this, beware luxurious living because judgment is near. The next section begins with the same call as in the first section, and now listen, but this time the call is to, and I quote, you rich people. It's very topical, isn't it? Uh, With the recent wave of protests around the world, there's been a lot of talk about the rich people, uh, the 1% of the world population, and indeed great resentment and anger expressed towards them. But who exactly are the rich? Uh, Curiously, nobody seems to think that they themselves are rich. Uh, People's self-assessment seems to be incredibly subjective. Uh, One Wall Street Journal reporter concluded that people's definition of rich is, and I quote, those whose income is equal to or greater than double my own income. We never actually get to be rich. It's always someone else. Uh, The gap between rich and poor is not just a modern phenomena. It was there in the first century too, and James was among the first of the protesters. He says, now listen, you rich. And what is his message to them? Chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. He's saying God's judgment is coming. Uh, That is the misery he's referring to. Uh, As we saw back in chapter 4, it's the language of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, One example would be Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. It says this, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So the rich may seem to be enjoying the good life now. Uh, The rich may seem to be laughing all the way to the bank. But actually they should weep and wail because of the misery that lies ahead for them. Verse 2 continues. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Uh, Supermarkets talk about some food as perishable goods. Uh, They are goods which don't have a long shelf life. But at the end of the day, all goods are perishable goods. Uh, None of it lasts. All of it will be useless on the day of judgment. Uh, Gold and silver actually can't rust, but the corrosion here is a picture of how useless riches are on the last day. They won't be any help. In fact, the opposite is the case. These accumulated goods will be used in evidence against the rich at the final judgment. 
at Exhibit A, all their stuff. But what is the specific charge? Uh, Is it wrong to be rich? Uh, Will all rich people be condemned at the judgment? Uh, Two charges are specified here. Uh, Firstly, luxurious living. Verse 3 ends. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Uh, What is condemned here is laying up treasure. Uh, Selfish accumulation of money and possessions and property as opposed to generosity and sharing and giving to those in need. Verse 5 goes on. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. These people have lived lives of luxury and self-indulgence with little concern for the needs of others. They are like if you're the rich fool in Jesus' parable. The more his wealth grew the bigger the design of his barns. All he was concerned with was more getting more. To live like that is to, as James says, fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. It means indulging our passions. To live like that is to be like a turkey fattening itself up for Christmas. But the slaughter in this case is actually the judgment of God. God has a real problem with self-indulgent luxury in a world in which there is so much need. And it's this disregard for the needs of others which is the other main charge. Look at verse 4. Look, says James, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Uh, The particular rich that James has in mind here were the wealthy landowners of his day who had people working for them. Uh, They defrauded their workers of their pay. But their unpaid wages cry out and God hears. And in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Uh, The language used suggests a law court setting. They were using legal process to accumulate land and to oppress the poor. Those are the charges. Uh, Luxurious living and unjust oppression. Uh, They tend to go together. When the rich live self-indulgently, it is usually the poor who suffer. So the key question is this. Uh, Who is James speaking about? Who is James condemning? Well, in the first place, it would seem it's people who are not, at this stage, Christians. In the final section of our passage today, in verse 5, verse 7, he will speak directly to the Christians. He'll say, brothers, addressing Christians. So it seems the group he has here in mind are another group. Uh, Presumably, he's addressing the rich who were oppressing the poor believers. Uh, It's a warning to rich non-believers, don't be fools. To live for money and possessions may appear to be the good life in the short term. However, in a few years, your luxury will seem as nothing. It will be a poor exchange for an eternity of misery. He's really calling them to live ultimately according to heavenly wisdom. To bring their lives and their plans under the Lordship of Christ, their Saviour and Lord. Because the last days have begun. Uh, 
and the day of Christ's judgment will soon be upon them. And so, really, they're being called to trust in Christ and not their wealth. Now then, whilst this section is directed primarily at those who aren't yet Christians, there is also something implicitly here for those of us who are Christians. Uh, Firstly, it's an encouragement not to envy the rich. It may seem like they have it all, but actually they stand to lose it all. And in the final analysis, they won't just forfeit their riches, but tragically, also their souls. But there's not only this encouragement to believers, but secondly also, surely, an implied warning to us as believers. We must beware slipping back down that spectrum towards that more worldly lifestyle, to living according more to worldly wisdom than heavenly wisdom. It is folly, of course, to lay up treasure, to live in luxury, and to pursue self-indulgence whilst disregarding those in need. On that world economic spectrum, at the end of the day, all of us here are rich. As the great 18th century preacher John Wesley put it, earn all you can, save all you can, by that he meant live simply, and give all you can. So are we living simply, giving sacrificially, and sharing generously? When we stand before the Lord on that final judgment day, will He be commending us for the way that we have used the wealth He's entrusted to us? It is difficult, isn't it, to know that balance between providing for the future and storing and saving for the future and hoarding. Where do we go from responsible saving into hoarding wealth? It's a very gray area, and it's one which I struggle with and which I'm sure you struggle with as well. I've had in my heart of late to, to give to organizations which support the persecuted church around the world, but I've not yet done anything about it. I'm weighing up on my mind. Well, should I save that recent dividend income, or should I give a generous proportion of it to these organizations? I don't know what the future holds. It's a difficult call. But I think I felt challenged by this passage to lean more towards trusting God and being generous now. And I want to guard against slipping into that hoarding mentality. It's a difficult area, and it's something which we all need to prayerfully work through together. So, two warnings. Uh, beware godless planning. Beware luxurious living. Thirdly, an exhortation. Embrace patient persevering, because ultimately the Lord is coming. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Uh, The picture is of a small farmer in Palestine. He plants his seed, and he waits anxiously for the rains to come. His whole livelihood depends on it. His family survival depends on it, the seed producing the harvest. And so we too, as believers, are also to wait patiently and to live faithfully. 
we do choose simplicity and generosity over luxury and hoarding. We are content in our lives rather than envious of those who just live for this world. Why? Because we know that the Lord is coming. He's coming, so it says, stand firm in our faith. Don't give way to doubt. Don't give up. Don't become worldly. Don't slip back down that spectrum towards worldly wisdom. Because the finishing line is just ahead. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we do get weary. We do get discouraged in our faith. Uh, perhaps you feel like that today. Uh, one day may roll into the next and we feel like a hamster on a wheel. Uh, this may be especially the case if we're in a boring job or a seemingly endless home routine. And yet, living according to heavenly wisdom reinforms our vision. It reminds us that the Lord is coming. And such a perspective will help us to keep shunning wilderness and to pursuing heavenly wisdom. Verse 9. Uh, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you too will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Uh, when the pressure is on us as believers, the temptation may be to compromise in our behavior. Maybe we think we can allow ourselves just a bit of complaining, a bit of grumbling, a bit of criticism. But when we're tempted to do that, this passage calls us to remember that the time is short. The judge is standing at the door. And when the door opens, we want to be those who are living lives according to heavenly wisdom. The judge is at the door. If you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, would there be any area of your life that you would sort out today? Would there be a relationship which you would seek to sort out or even to give up? Would there be an activity which you would say, I must stop or a sin to turn from? Because the judge is standing at the door and there's no time to lose. So in many ways, uh, the life of faith, the life according to heavenly wisdom is hard. It is a rocky path. But we're not the first ones to walk it. Uh, many have gone before and they now are an encouragement to us to tread that same path. Verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. The Old Testament prophets, of course, paid a high price for their faith, but they kept going and they didn't give up. Remember also specifically the person Job, verse 11. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Uh, Job's example, of course, lives on to this day. Uh, what do people say about Job today? What's the saying? You've got the patience of Job. There it is. Job kept going in the face of severe testing and severe hardship. And in the end, God was good to him. Uh, Job was very wealthy, but he used his riches generously caring for the needy. So if we keep going in faith, we will ultimately inherit what God has promised. 
And these heroes of the faith who have gone before encourage us to do the same, to keep going, to keep living radical lives shaped by heavenly wisdom. So in conclusion, uh, we don't know what tomorrow may bring. Uh, Life is short. We are in the last days, and Christ's judgment is near. Uh, The Lord is coming. He's at the door. Another great example of a life radically shaped by the gospel perspective to that of uh, C.T. Studd was that of Lord Shaftesbury, uh, the great 19th century English social reformer. Uh, Like C.T. Studd, Lord Shaftesbury was uh, born into a privileged life. His background was one of horses, shooting parties, and stately waltzes in stately homes. Uh, He was an aristocrat. But his Christian faith led him to dedicate his life to serving the poor. He was committed to furthering the cause of the oppressed and the exploited, and to advance the cause of foreign missions. And of course, he faced great opposition in his time. Why did Lord Shaftesbury do it when he could have just continued in a life of ease and self-indulgence? Well, he was reported to have said on one occasion, and I quote, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have ever lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Wow, that's incredible. He lived constantly mindful of the Lord's return, and he lived in the light of that every day of his life. So life is short. The Lord will return. Maybe we those who continue to tread the path of those who have gone before us, those who have embraced ongoingly heavenly wisdom, the path of humility, which trusts God for our future and seeks his will for our present. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you're the sovereign God over all. Thank you that as Christians, we can trust our future to you. Uh, We can make our plans, but always having that privilege of saying, if it is your will, uh, help us to embrace that privilege, to live according to heavenly wisdom. Help us to know how to respond wisely to the wealth you've entrusted to us, to get that balance between being generous, uh, but also uh, saving for the future and being wise. Help us to live each day, never losing sight of you, the judge, being at the door. And may we live ultimately every day for those commending words of your voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen.